Hey, I'm Nalin. Hi, I'm Consoria. Hey, this is Grace. And I'm Sally. We're your hosts. You're listening to Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast, where we answer all of your questions using a public health perspective. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast. Today, we've got Nalin. Hi. Sawi. Hi, everyone. Grace. Hi. And <laughs> me, Consoria. Hello, everyone. So today, we will be discussing and answering some questions about COVID-19. But first, we want to introduce you to our Need to Know news segment where we'll share a current event or news update that we believe our listeners need to know about. Okay, who wants to start us off? I will start. I am back home in California, and currently churches are allowed to host in-person services. So this was a really big deal for my family, knowing that I grew up in the church. However, Governor Newsom recently enforced restrictions that don't allow congregations to sing or chant while attending an in-person service. So if you know anything about the church, this is a really big deal, right? Because chanting and singing are forms of praise and worship. But understandably, these restrictions have been set in place because the coronavirus is airborne. So I feel like we've We've had discussions about this and the truth to it, and there are some articles that say it's still somewhat inconclusive, but I think the safer route is just to assume coronavirus is airborne. So since we're talking about COVID-19 today, I think it's fitting to mention the more recent and pretty much affirmative claims that COVID-19 is airborne. So this means that it can be transported through the air. Now, before we've heard about droplets that are released when we sneeze or cough, well, droplets and aerosols are pretty much the same thing. They stem from our respiratory tract or our lungs, but they do differ in size. So I really wanna make this point to address the difference and why there's probably a lot more restrictions around face masks and social distancing. A few things that our listeners should know about regarding aerosols is that they can be, they can be released when we cough sneeze, but it can also be released when we exhale, sing, or speak, maybe even shout. So another thing, because they are smaller and lighter than droplets, they linger in the air for a longer period of time. So this would help explain how an asymptomatic individual, someone showing no symptoms of COVID-19, can actually transmit the disease without even coughing or sneezing. So I say all this just to make that point of differentiation, but also to warn our listeners and everyone else to be very, very careful when we're in public spaces or if we're surrounded by non-family or household members. So with that, please continue to wear those masks, practice social distancing, and if you have to be indoors, make sure there is adequate ventilation. Before I jump into the next news piece, here is a question for you all. What is herd immunity? Quoting a definition from Johns Hopkins, when most of a population is immune to an infectious disease, this provides indirect protection, or namely herd immunity to those who are not immune to the disease. That is to say, there are two ways to achieve herd immunity. A large proportion of the population either gets infected 
or gets a protective vaccine. If enough people are immune to a disease, it is unlikely to keep spreading from person to person. So a group of researchers from Spain recently published a paper on Lancet, which cast doubts on herd immunity feasibility. Despite the high impact of COVID-19 in Spain, prevalence estimates remain low and are clearly insufficient to provide herd immunity. Research done in other countries have shown similar results. This underscores the need for maintaining public health measure to avoid a new epidemic wave. Letting the infection run rampant and risking public health is not ethical. That was awesome. Thank you, Sally and Grace, for sharing these need-to-know news. So with that being said, we also have some curious listeners who would like to hear our thoughts on coronavirus. We have questions from Capua Kid and Anne today. I hope I got your names right. Uh, We can begin with Capua Kid's questions. So they're wondering what our thoughts are on the rising coronavirus cases, but the lowering of COVID-related deaths in the United States. So yeah, what do you guys think about that? I think, well, I've read actually, um, earlier this morning, NPR released an article that I found very interesting, basically saying that COVID is not affecting all states equally. An assistant professor of global health and epidemiology at the Rowland School of Public Health at Emory University actually attributed this to the patchwork response across the states. And so he's saying that because each state's response to the outbreak is different, it makes it a lot harder to contain the virus nationally. Um, But I think to add to that, what we're also seeing is that the virus is affecting younger people nowadays. So in the article, it states the 30 to 40 age group. And at the start of the outbreak, we were told that the elderly are the most susceptible since they're more likely to have underlying health conditions or a compromised immune system which still holds true. But now we're seeing it affect younger populations. And so with younger people, they tend to be a lot healthier or we at least expect them to be, making them more apt to overcome the adverse health effects of the virus. So I think that may play a part in why, you know, in addition to testing, why we're seeing a lot more cases, but we're not seeing as many deaths due to COVID. Do you think that another reason for this could also be the exposure? Because the number of cases are only will only rise as far as people are exposed to it. So at the start of the outbreak, before we knew kind of who was more likely to be affected by this, um, exposure was more spread out across all populations. So we would see a a higher number of deaths um, for the elderly because people were still out and about. But as the pandemic kind of progressed and time went on, older people were staying indoors because there was more awareness that they were more affected um, and more vulnerable to the effects of the the virus. Um, And I think people were staying indoors. Everyone was generally staying indoors for a certain amount of time. But now, you know, a lot of people can, you know, start to get stir crazy when they're indoors for a long period of time. And so generally now it's the, the younger people who, feel like they need to come outside and they're like, I can't stay inside anymore. And I think that coupled with probably not having very good mass compliance overall um, is increasing the number of infections. But because it's just the younger people that are getting sick and Saudi, as you said, they're generally more resilient. 
you know, these increase in infections isn't necessarily um, increasing the deaths. Yeah, um, I read something similar to what you were saying, Nalan, about how infections are shifting more towards younger folks. Uh, like, for example, in Arizona, it's people ages 20 to 44 that make up for almost half of the cases. And then Florida, my goodness, Florida, their median age of those infected, it, uh, it drops from 65 to 35 years old. So, yeah, I think it could be due to the resilience, like, like one of our professors, Dr. Shaman, mentioned uh, that people our age are probably, like, we'll probably get it, most of us, but we might not feel anything. Um, and then also, sometimes I, as a young person myself, I do feel like I'm invincible to things, even though I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like other young people, you know, they're, summer it's hot in New York people want to go out and they they want to hang out with their friends and get drinks so you know bars and restaurants my take on this is that as this pandemic spreads to more and more countries for countries with relatively great resilience and public health measures would be better prepared when the cases surge also, globalization enables a faster and freer circulation of medical resources and information pertaining to the public health emergency measures and the care for the affected individuals across the globe. Moreover, lessons and experience can be learned from countries already affected by the coronavirus to help navigate better and tailor tactics and measures to deal with the challenges in each country. But I think one thing to still keep in mind that even though younger people are getting infected, they may not die, but it's still a really big impact on probably every aspect of their life. Like if you are one of the lucky ones who get infected and you're asymptomatic, that's great. But it's important to be aware that you're asymptomatic doesn't mean that you are not infectious as well. And so what happens if you know you're like you feel good but you walk past someone and you accidentally breathe at the same time or breathe the same air and that person ends up getting it because they might not be wearing a mask because they also feel like they might be invincible you know maybe they they're not so lucky that they they're not asymptomatic they present with all these respiratory issues that we've heard about you know what what happens then and then not to mention the healthcare infrastructure that's su supporting that, like A, if you're lucky enough to live in a place where you have the healthcare system that can support you when you do fall really ill, or you have the financial resources to, you know, pay for all this healthcare. I think like those parts also come into play. Yeah, it's like silent but deadly. Exactly. With asymptomatic carry <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> have you guys uh, gotten tested? I have not. not. I haven't either. But I feel like I should. <laughs> Just to know. <laughs> I think one of our professors was um, using the verb for scraping to describe. And I think no. I, was, <laughs> I was just like, ah, oh my gosh. that's terrifying. <laughs> but it's a swab. It's not like tweezers going up your no, nose. No, it's not no. like a sharp edge. No, and I, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a swab, but I think they stick it up a little get further. Get in there. Than, yeah. <laughs> then just really get in of there. Your nose hole. <laughs> 
Well, all that being said, I think it's still important to know that there is still so much about this that we don't know. Um, one of the big things is there's been this assumption that um, if you get infected with COVID-19, it confers some sort of immunity, but we don't actually know this for sure. We've heard anecdotally st stories of people who are getting reinfected again, but it's just we just don't have enough information to say for sure if A, you can get reinfected after you've gotten your first infection, or if you, um, if it does confer some kind of immunity, how long does that immunity last? We just simply don't have enough information to know about that yet. And I don't know if this is a product of just screening tests in general that are, well, screening tests in general are subject to false negatives, false positives, things like that. Um, but each screening test has that percentage that will give you false positive or false negative. So it might be because of that and also the fact that this test was probably developed very rapidly because of these high, uh, numbers of false negatives. While you should trust the test to a certain extent, there's also a small kind of a little bit of uncertainty with that. And so it's better for you and for everyone around you to just be extra cautious. And I think in general, outside of these two things that I just mentioned, there's still a lot of things that we don't know. Like people have studied, for example, people have studied the flu, the influenza for many, 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 many years, but we still aren't super sure of the main mode of transmission of influenza. People know the different ways that it can be transmitted, but people aren't sure what exactly is the main mode of transmission. And so it's best to be, again, extra cautious. Thanks, nice. Nolan. Thank you for, for all that science and PSA hard facts. <laughs> <laughs> the second question from Kappa Kid, how do you think the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted coronavirus cases? If you want to know how the Black Lives Matter movement has impacted the coronavirus cases, we may start off by pinpointing the time frame for the movement, for instance, in the New York City or even nationwide, and then look at the trend of cases pre and post the movement. Researchers published a paper on the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, they used mobile phone data and coronavirus cases data from uh, CDC, which was collected from 315 American cities with at least 100,000 people covering the period mid-May to mid-June to determine whether the protests were associated with less social distancing behavior and more COVID-19 cases. The researchers compared the experience of the 200 81 cities where protests erupted with the 34 cities where they didn't. One third of protesting cities saw large scale gatherings with a thousand or more attendees, making those particular regions more susceptible to another outbreak. Surprisingly or not, they found that the protest had no significant effect one way or the other on the surge of the COVID-19 cases. They also found that protests were actually associated with an increase in social distancing behavior. So I know, Consoria, you attended one of the marches last month in the city. Is this true? 
yes, I did attend one of the marches. Uh, so I went to one on June 2nd at Stonewall in New York City. Uh, initially, I was a little bit hesitant to go because I had been physically distancing the whole time. And, you know, I feel like things were going well for me health-wise. But then I felt like it was important for me to show up and, like, show my support for the movement. Uh, since it is a human rights and a public health issue. So when I showed up, there was a large crowd. Uh, it was formed around the organizers, I think, because they were giving speeches to rally people up. And so it, it was a regular crowd, like you, you stand next to each other. There was no way to social distance. Um, this one lady next to me was holding out her arms, like in front and to the side to, to like create a like a radius around her or something and she was like sorry guys I'm just trying to maintain my social distancing while also being here and then one of her friends was like girl you gotta pick one right now and I was like oh my gosh wait what do you mean she had to pick one right now um, uh pick one like to either be here and oh. you know support it or social put her hands down or keep them up <laughs> Exactly. She should have worn one of those. Have you seen? It was like the hats with the pool noodles sticking out. <laughs> yeah. She should have worn that. Seriously. I thought that was uh, funny how her friend was just like sassy. And then once they had all the speeches and stuff, we, we started marching. So first when it's like one of the smaller streets, things actually get pretty packed. But uh, thankfully, a lot of the people in the marches, they were very prepared and uh, helpful towards one another. They There were people handing out uh, snacks, masks, beverages to keep everyone from passing out, I guess. Um, hand wipes and hand sanitizers and stuff like that. So even though everyone there knew that they would be at risk of transmitting the virus or getting the virus, they still try to maintain as many forms of precaution as they could besides the physical distancing part. Uh, and then also... After I went home, I did my two weeks of quarantine again just to make sure. Thankfully, I was fine. Um, yeah, and well, one thing I like to point out is that the people that were giving all of these resources to one another, it seemed like they were people our age from what I could tell. Uh, they looked young, so it made me really happy that uh, we're all like so passionate and so caring and like they're demonstrating this collective effort to minimize passing on the virus while also using their voice and their bodies to advocate for Black Lives Matter. And then also I was a little bit paranoid as well, still from protesting, and I did a bit of reading, uh, and it showed that, let me see, to see if there were like any data to see if the rising cases were related to the protests. And I, it says that major cities with major protests, there doesn't seem to be, be any link to it uh, and one reason for that it could be due to people that weren't participating in the marches there was an increase of them staying inside because they were either scared of uh, the police or being stuck in one of the marches or uh, getting infected and stuff like that or they were scared of the violence so then there's more people staying inside so then that might have been something that evened out with the amount of protesters and the people that stayed inside. Kintori, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you really battled with, I want to show my support. I think it's important to show my support for the Black Lives Matter movement, but also as a 
as a public health student, you were concerned about one being infected, but also transmitting the disease. And I just want to say, I'm sure you're not the only one. Like I am sure there were other public health practitioners, maybe even healthcare workers who were out there wanting to show their support and just struggled with like, should I be here or should I be setting an example? But I also want to say too that the whole, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is rooted in addressing racial inequality and injustice and racism has been killing the black community a lot longer than COVID-19 has and in much more brutal ways. So I don't blame them for being out there even during a pandemic. So I just wanted to say that because I, I would imagine that you like other students had that battle, like mental battle of, I wanna set an example, but I also need to show up and show out. In terms of you know what we've had to say about Black Lives Matter and the impact on COVID-19, I agree. I think that there hasn't been any conclusive data saying that the protesters caused a spike in COVID-19 cases or that there were a lot more cases due to them being outside, not social distancing. Some were wearing masks, some weren't wearing masks. Um, but I think going back to what we addressed in our need to know news segment about COVID being airborne, it makes sense why someone or maybe researchers would expect that there would be a, a huge spike. Um, but in addition to what you said, Consoria, about, you know, protesting and the looting, which I recognize as two different things during that time, looters and protesters, when that all took place, people were probably more inclined to stay indoors to avoid traffic, to avoid be out in shopping areas. And that could have definitely contributed to why we don't see a spike in COVID-19 cases. But also, one article that I did read, which I found very interesting, there was concern about the different responses to the protesters and how that could have led to an increase in cases. So tear gas or pepper spray and how that would, you know, naturally cause someone to maybe cough or to kind of like take off their mask if they were wearing one in the first place and therefore releasing those aerosols. And that could have been contributing to why people expected there to be an increase or even possible arrests and how that could have crowded police buses or even jails holding some of the arrested protesters. But I think what some researchers are saying is very valid. And I think overall, we just didn't see a huge spike as folks expected. And I don't think that does, that doesn't mean that there weren't any new cases that were derived from the protesting. I just think it wasn't as drastic as we thought it was going to be. I think what you said about um, kind of the tear gas or being crowded and having to take off their masks. Um, I've seen kind of pictures and videos of other protesters rushing to help people who have been tear gassed and things like that. And so the fact that, you know, you're using that in its self is very dangerous but coupled with kind of a pandemic state that we're in that just increases the contacts between people when trying to help others who might have been impacted um, not to say that that's definitely not on the protesters at all but just kind of another way in which police and those in kind of authority positions are perpetuating or increasing, might contribute to increasing number of cases. 
All right. So those were the two questions from Capua Kids. Our last question is from our listener, Anne. Hi, Anne. And she is wondering, earlier in the pandemic, it was said that we may never fully transition back to normal, but rather a new normal with more precautions for our safety. However, it seems like the country is trying to shift back to normal before we are even ready. At this rate, how long do you think it will take for America to be as safe as it was before the spread of the virus? I think it depends on one of two things. So the first is an effective vaccine, which I know takes time, money, and testing to ensure viability before it hits the market. But I do think that in some cases, there is going to be relief when a vaccine is made available. I know that there's talk about people not... Like one of the big hurdles once a vaccine is available is that folks may not even want to take it. So um, I think that's something to be wary of. But I do think that when an effective vaccine is available, we may be able to get back to a new normal. I I don't know if things would be normal and go back to how it was before COVID-19, but I think there will be some sort of like relief, relaxation among society. So the other factor for me is collective action. And I've learned about other countries that have been able to get the virus under control. Um, And that has a lot to do with like their leaders, basically instructing and motivating their citizens to really pull it together and recognize their responsibility to themselves, their neighbors and their country. So I think that they have been able to hold themselves accountable to do what they know they need to do in order to get rid of the virus. And I think that's really missing here in the US. Um, And to speak to your question about, you know, this new normal with more precautions for our safety. Yes, I think that no matter what, whether a vaccine is available and whether we can get it together as a country, there will still need to be some sort of precautions just to ensure that, you know, maybe, who knows, there might be a new virus that makes its way. I mean, with the way 2020 is going, we have no idea what may end up popping. We still have what, like, four, six months, five months left in the year, like a lot can happen. Definitely so, we're in July. <laughs> wait, how, what is it? How many years, how many months are in a year? Oh, no, no, you're oh. right. It's like five, Eight, five nine, months. 10, 12. Yeah, yeah five seven, months. Yeah. 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 Can we leave that in? How many months are in a year? <laughs> <laughs> I just, so all those to say, I think that, I think that we'll get to a new normal and I think that it'll be one hopefully we can create that is a lot more tolerable than what we're experiencing now both in the time of COVID-19 and thereafter but I do think that if we're not willing to wait for a vaccine which I'm sure that is the case for many of us because we're just so eager to get back to our regular routines then I do think it's going to take us coming together and really pulling our own weight and doing what we can. So we cannot have anyone else going to Trader Joe's without a mask, claiming that it's violating their rights. Like we need, we need to get everyone on board. And I don't say that to encourage anyone to just go out and be like, yeah, I need to tell these people to wear their masks. It's like, no, we, we still need to be respectful. But I do think that there needs to be a collective understanding of where we stand as a country and what we need to do as a country. And Right now, it feels like we are the divided states of America, not the United <laughs> States of America. And we definitely have the potential to change that. So Thanks. that's all I can say on it right now, though. 
Speaking of New Zealand, um, there was a article that I read on the news about how um, the prime minister, I think, right? New mm-hmm. Zealand has a prime minister. Jacinda, and she's a woman. Yes, exactly. Woo-hoo. Jacinda Ardern, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, the article was talking about her leadership and she does these Facebook live videos <laughs> that broadcasts out every so often that people go and take a look at. And I was really curious. So I went and listened to one of her Facebook posts and it was very, it was so, um, it was really nice the way she, she has this very approachable way of talking. And I think kind of that community collective um, accountability thing that you were talking about, Sally, she definitely emphasized that in her Facebook live videos that she does. Um, and I think the fact that there is this collective voice coming from the leader of the country helps a lot because it helps people know what to expect and when. And so I think she was the one that I watched, she was outlining the different stages of reopening to the people in New Zealand. And so And each stage was kind of like, if we can do this, then we can go on to the next stage. And if all, if if we can do all of this, then we can move on to the next stage. And so there's like this clear expectation of what needs to be done before you move on to the next stage and kind of what, what to expect. I think it might be different in the U.S. because I feel like first it's a political thing like people here care more about themselves. Like what you just said, Sally, like if we don't do the testing, it seems like we don't have cases kind of thing, but then it doesn't mean we don't have cases. But in Asian countries, once they see a surge or something, they'll definitely do something to protect the good of the public instead of just, okay, I don't see anything, you know? It, it's so complicated. It's also a culture thing, you know. So I want to share um, two different stories about quarantine and contract tracing in Thailand. And I think that right now these things are kind of lacking um, in the U.S. And I think that definitely the contact tracing is essential to try to get back to be as quote unquote normal as possible, right? But before I go into my stories, one thing to know about Thailand is I think culturally speaking, we are more, it's not like a very individualistic type of mindset like you would find in the U.S. Um, It's very like family oriented, very community oriented. um, And a lot of families live in multi-generational households, even like my own. I Um, When I go home, I live with my parents and in that same house, my grandparents live there and my aunts and my cousins, and we all live together in one house. And so that kind of um, housing setup is not uncommon at all. And I think the fact that COVID is, um, that the older generation is more susceptible to COVID and the fact that we all live with older people in our homes makes it so that you have to be more conscious about the community that you're in to avoid people in your family getting sick. Um, So one thing that is mandatory for um, 
travelers coming back into Thailand during this time is everyone has to undergo a state mandated quarantine where when you land, after you get through immigration, you are taken to a quarantine facility that's managed by this, uh, the country, the state. And um, all of this is paid for by the government unless um, you choose to be in a specific, or you can choose to be in like a private quarantine facility, in which case you have to pay for that yourself. But um, the state quarantine facilities are places like hotels that because of uh, decreased tourism um, have partnered with the, the city to offer their um, rooms to be available for quarantine. And so you might end up at a hotel for your two week quarantine, or you might end up at um, an army base outside of the city. It kind of depends on your luck of the draw where you, where you get to be for the two weeks when you come back. And because of that, community spread within the uh, country and within specifically Bangkok is really, really low. I think each day, the country as a whole, you get only a handful of cases and it's mo mostly from people coming back into the country from overseas. And so my second story is about contact tracing. Um, and like we mentioned before in our episode, contact tracing is really important because you can't control the cases if you don't know where the cases are and contact tracing is a way for you to be able to track where those cases are. And um, I know that they have this in, in Bangkok, the city, but I, I'm not sure about what the situation is kind of in the areas outside of Bangkok. Um, but for, the, uh, for like an establishment, a store or a restaurant or any kind of building, um, to be open and to have people able to come in. Um, they have to apply on this website that's, I think, run by the government for a QR code. This QR code is posted outside of their door. So like, for example, if you're going to a mall, um, this QR code is posted on all the doors coming like where you would enter the mall. When you walk in, the first thing that you need to do is each person needs to scan this QR code on their phone. And so what it, um, the information that it takes is your phone number and the time that you are checking into that location. So then you like go into the mall, do your thing, whatever. When you come back out, you also need to check out. And so again, it'll register like name, phone number, and the time that you check out so that if during any period of time someone has COVID, they can trace that person to be like, okay, in all the, in like the past few days, where has this person been? And during that time, who else was in those same places with that person? And so they're able to contact and trace all these people to be like, okay, this person was in this mall during this time. These other people were also there. So these other people should kind of be isolated and, um, you know, social distance and be aware in case you're like, you have symptoms. I could see um, one of the arguments against a system like this would be um, like the privacy issues surrounding the data that you're collecting. But I don't think, I, mean, I think if it's the, I think the data that they're collecting in Thailand is just your name, your phone number so that they can contact you and the locations that you're checking in and checking out as you're going in and out of buildings or stores. And I think that 
all of us have like most of us have smartphones these days we use like all these like uh like map apps or like social media apps and even um like credit card information all this stuff is tracked generally we it's just right. not something mm-hmm. that's kind of publicized or talked about and so i don't personally for like to be able to build a robust contact tracing system and to only collect those things i feel like that is a small price to pay and not as kind of intrusive as some of the other information that like social media sites or credit card companies might already be collecting on you and then to add on to sally's comment um i think it's really dependent on two main things um the first one is the evidence-based policies that the government is putting out on kind of Mm. like a higher level. And Mm -hmm. the second one is how compliant people are willing to be with those policies. Because you can't really have one without the other. They kind of have to work together, right? And I know this was, this was a really good question. We can't give you a direct answer, but we just, we can say that it just really depends on what the next couple of months look like as a nation and what we are doing to really get a hold of this. Thank you, Sally, for that summary of takeaways. And also a big thank you to Anne and Kid for their question submissions. We hope that today's episode gives you some perspective and we encourage you to do your own research and continue this conversation with others. Don't forget to check out our website to view the external sources we may have used to inform today's discussion. And definitely don't forget to wear those masks. That's all for today. Tune in next week for a whole new episode. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you have a response to today's question, we want to hear it. Head over to our site and post your thoughts or submit your own question. This is Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast. I'm Sawi, and thanks for listening. Thank you.